I didn't want us to do this like nostalgic, like ironic thing, which I think is so often how media portrays the suburbs, which is like, oh, it's like a wasteland and it's just chains. And the purpose of the suburbs is that you like that you grow up there and then you leave them and you go to the city. And I think that, you know, I think media has been really like media has really shaped how we approach the suburbs, especially because I feel like so many people at like big food magazines and stuff are based in cities and specifically New York. There are so many great pieces about sort of nostalgic, like why people love Olive Garden or, you know, how people understood their, you know, their identity through restaurants in the suburbs. And I think there is a lot of value in that, but I also, but I did want to sort of break out of that like media lens of just seeing the suburbs as like, a nostalgic place or an ironic place or somewhere that you like leave and sort of think about the suburbs in like a in like a more forward thinking sense and actually just sort of celebrate like what is good about them now as opposed to being like this was my childhood and this is why I liked it. Welcome to another episode of Amuse Bouche, a podcast of big ideas in small bites. I'm your host, Kehlani Palmasano, and this week's big idea comes from Bettina McElintal, who says that we should be paying a lot more attention to dining in the suburbs. As a staff writer with Vice Munchies, Bettina helped spearhead their project, State of the Suburbs, a series about how dining in the suburbs is evolving. And having just moved back to suburbia myself after nearly a decade in Philadelphia, I must say that the burbs are burgeoning with incredible food. Everything from farmers markets and local artisans to restaurants taking some pretty ambitious leaps of faith, even in the midst of a global pandemic. But just a note before we begin, Bettina's audio sounds a little like she's talking over a phone. That's because it was like 90 degrees on the day we recorded this podcast, and there was no way I was going to ask her to turn off her fan. But you likely won't notice because one, everything Bettina has to say is super interesting. And two, I worked around it. And honestly, I'm impressed with my epic audio engineering skills. Either way, in case you notice that it sounds a little wonky, that's why. Okay, back to the show. As a food and culture writer, Bettina McElintal is equal parts trend analyst and trend setter. In addition to being a staff writer for Vice, where she covers food through the lens of pop culture and history, Bettina has a knack for creating trendy food content on social media. Even Lizzo has tried her kale sauce pasta on TikTok. Recently, Bettina and the team at Vice Munchies came out with a series called State of the Suburbs, a commentary that celebrates dining in the suburbs and also discusses how it's changing. In her piece, It's Time to Take Suburban Food Seriously, Bettina, who was born in Manila and grew up in the burbs of Philadelphia, matches up with her observations with data to point out that we should be all paying attention to suburban dining renaissance. Uh, Bettina, tell us about where you grew up and what the dining landscape looked like during the late 90s and early 2000s. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Um, so yeah, so I grew up in the sort of Willow Grove, Pennsylvania area, which is about uh, 15 miles north of Philadelphia. Um, it's sort of this this area that is multiple little towns that sort of make up the like Willow Grove um, like commercial area. And I think that like because Willow Grove is sort of known for having a mall. Um, that's its big like claim to fame. And I think that's like a big sort of center of like life there. 
Um, and so because of that, it is sort of a more commercial suburb than I think some suburbs that are a little bit north of it. Um, so there are a lot of malls and a lot of strip malls. And I think that for a long time, when I, I moved there in 1997, and I think that throughout sort of the late 90s and early 2000s, um, it was very sort of like commercial. You know, it was a lot of fast food chains and it was like an olive garden, a cheesecake factory, sort of all of the things that you expect from suburban dining. Um, were there. And then there were also just a lot of like, you know, hoagie shops and pizza places and Wawa's and Rita's. Um, so yeah, I think that it sort of, for a long time, it just sort of felt like the type of suburb that sort of existed everywhere where it just had, you know, the big names. Um, and that was really the local culture. Yeah, yeah. So how has dining in Willow Grove changed over the years? Yeah, I think that like, I think that I really started noticing it over sort of the past decade, because I moved out of the area in 2010. And now I sort of go home intermittently, you know, maybe twice a year. Um, and I think the real big change is just that there's a lot more, there are a lot more options. And there are a lot more options that are both like independent restaurants, um, and also just places that I think feel a lot more sort of you know, more specialized types of restaurants and more specific. Like when I was growing up, there were a lot of like Asian restaurants that were sort of, you know, mostly Chinese buffets, but they also had sushi. Um, and now, you know, I've noticed that there are like, there's a Thai restaurant and there's like a ramen place and there's a Hawaiian barbecue place. So there are a lot of, you know, there's a lot, there's like, they're sort of not, they're no longer sort of these like everything in one places. Um, but there is a market for sort of more specific types of cuisine. I do. I, I feel that. And uh, when when you were younger, though, did you enjoy going to like the Olive Garden or the Applebee's or the like Cheesecake Factory? Yeah, I mean, I totally did. I think like my family went out to eat kind of a lot, actually. Um, and so I did like felt I felt a really strong um, affection for places like IHOP was like every Sunday after church, we would like go to IHOP. And if the line at IHOP was too long, we would go to the Chinese buffet. So there were all these places that were sort of part of our routine. Um, my family was never really into Olive Garden for some reason. Um, they like found the food kind of like boring. Um, so that was never like part of it, but, but, you know, but the places like friend, like friendlies and like the TGI Fridays at the mall, like everything sort of had its like specific time that we would go there. Or like, I always had like one thing I really liked. Um, so yeah, I think those things were really like a big part of like my childhood dining. Oh my goodness. I, I agree because I feel like with the burbs around Philadelphia and maybe the burbs around like most cities, like I'm from South Jersey. I grew up in a little town called Berlin, which is like equidistant to Philadelphia from where you are, like that 15 miles outside of the city kind of thing. And even though like all of the burbs kind of like look to Philadelphia as kind of like an identifier and kind of look to Philadelphia in terms of like our accents are very similar. The food is very similar. You're like, you're talking about Wawa and Rita's like that really deeply resonates with me. Like suddenly you hear of Rita's and you just remember like going with all of your little school friends to go get like gelatos or the the mix of like a rat what was it the water ice and the ice cream which everyone has their like particular combination that they mm -hmm. really like um but yeah it's you're right there were you know I remember going to like Applebee's with friends after school it was like right near the high school and um lots of friendlies as well but did you as a um in the 90s and 2000s did you ever make it down to Philadelphia and experience that food or like how often were you going into the city yeah so I mean so as a like as a teenager I started getting really into going to concerts in Philly 
Um, so I oh, nice. my friends and I would like take the train into the city. And I think that was like, you know, that started when I was maybe around 14. Um, and yeah, that was a really, that was really eye opening for me. I went to a lot of shows at the Trocadero, um, which yes. is like in <laughs> Chinatown. So for, so like, so I ended up really just like, we had like, there was one restaurant in Chinatown, which I think is still open, which is Penang, which is like a Malaysian restaurant. And that, yes, that yeah. was sort of like the place we would go, like every Trocadero show, we would go to Penang and like, I would get my hair cut nearby. So like, that was really it. And I feel like that was really like, that was one of the biggest, like, you know, that was very formative for me because it was an exposure to all of these foods I'd never had before. And like, I'd go there with my parents too. And my parents like briefly lived in Singapore. So a lot of the food was very sort of like nostalgic for them because they like couldn't get it in the suburbs. So it was nice to sort of have it, you know, in the city. Um, and yeah, and then as I sort of got a little bit older, I'd like branch out a little bit more, but I was always very tied to like Chinatown in Philadelphia. Oh, same. Yeah, I I have like great memories of going to the Trocadero and going to shows, but you get something to eat a little bit beforehand. And uh, we always went to a place called Wong Wong's. It's like on the I forget what corner that it's on, but they had really nice noodle soups that were nice. just really comforting. And yeah, that was that's that's joyful. And I think those like jaunts into the city and experiencing food that was different from what was offered in the suburbs, like almost motivated me to move to Philadelphia because I did move to Philadelphia um, in 2011 and lived there until 2019, actually. And um, yeah, and it, it was that kind of this jarring thing of like lived in Philadelphia was like watched as the dining grew there. But then I've moved to the burbs and I thought, oh, I'm leaving all of that great food culture scene behind in Philadelphia, even though, mind you, I I can see Philadelphia right across <laughs> the river. I did not move that far away. Totally. And I'm actually like, you know, it's so funny because if I need to get to WHYY to like film something or work or do something, um, it used to be 45 minutes from where I lived in graduate hospital. It now only takes me like 20 minutes oh, well. to get into. And and that's like if I'm taking the train, but like if I feel like driving, it's only about 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but when I moved out to the burbs, I realized, I mean, I realized a little bit before because for the show that I host, Check Please, like it, we we were fielding all of these restaurant recommendations from viewers in the region. So it wasn't just like Philadelphia. It was out by the Burbs, Mainline, you know, Delaware, and also South Jersey. People were really recommending these like spots in the Burbs that I just like never heard of, never considered going to. And uh, that's when I started realizing like, ooh, there's like something happening in the Burbs. So moving to South Jersey and then re-immersing myself back into like this culture where there's like this increase in in like variety of food. Um, I, I don't want to say like, I feel like authenticity, the word authenticity is kind of like low hanging fruit, but like the nuance, I should say, the nuance yeah. of of different cuisines and everything is just like really growing and changing. Um, in your article for Vice, you kind of talked about the drivers to those changes. Um, what do you think are like the biggest drivers to this influx of like suburban dining that's happening. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a lot of things. And I think that, I think that like the most obvious thing, like at this exact point in time is that, you know, the pandemic forced a lot of people to sort of rethink where they wanted to live and sort of like, you know, a lot of people moved out of cities 
Um, and I think that, you know, there was a lot of people moving out of New York and San Francisco and looking for places that were like cheaper or, you know, places where you could buy a house, for example. And so I think that pushed a lot of people into the suburbs, especially also as, you know, people just were visiting family more or staying with family for an extended period of time. Um, but I think that also like from the research that I did, it seems like a lot of it has just been sort of like, you know, the suburbs are this like promising area, especially for businesses. You know, companies want to open like their campuses or their new headquarters. And so in order to sort of pull in those types of employers and also workers who would want to work with them and live with them, you know, I think that the suburbs are also experiencing development to, you know, to, to meet those needs. And so, you know, in order to you know, have an enticing, you know, an enticing business campus in the suburbs. They build a lot of restaurants around it and they build like new grocery stores and fitness options and apartments. Um, and so I think that, you know, I think that's, has been a big push. And I think part of it too is sort of, there are a lot of suburbs around the country that are sort of like dying suburbs where a lot of those strip malls and those spaces are sort of not doing so well anymore. And especially like, you know, the death of like the mall, especially as people are buying things online. And so I think that a lot of those places, you know, people in those areas like clearly want things to go to and like businesses to support. Um, And so it seems like a lot of the push has also just been, you know, rethinking those spaces so that they can actually be more like useful for people um, with things that they actually want to go to as opposed to just having these strip malls like sit empty. How is like I've I've been to Willow Grove Mall. That's the one. Is there like a carousel? There somewhere? is. Yeah, there's a carousel okay. <laughs> um, right next to the Ruby Tuesdays. Um, uh. <laughs> but yeah, yes. I mean, like that. I think that mall is a really good example. Where like when I was in high school, um, which was in like the early 2000s, it was really like busy and like you know most of the storefronts were full, and it was just like you know it seemed like a thriving mall. But sort of over the past 10 years, um, it just seems, you know, it's, it's a lot sadder, like businesses, there's a lot of like open storefronts, and they stay, they stay, like, they just stay empty for a really long time. Um, And so you can really tell that, like, there isn't as much pull to that space in the way that people used to use it. Um, Even the food court, which like, I recall hanging out so much in as a teenager, like, there are empty storefronts, and people just aren't like sitting there as much as like they used to. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think that, that has forced a lot of changes sort of in the area. Oh, definitely. I definitely agree. Do, do you think like that we'll find different uses for mall space? Do you see that kind of percolating anywhere? I mean, I think that is like the, I think that is like the large scale um, prediction of people in the like real estate management industry is that those spaces will be used differently or that malls of people who were developing malls will develop sort of more of those like mixed use uh, spaces that have like, you know, stores and then apartments above them to sort of create like town centers as opposed to just having these malls where people go to like buy things. Um, at the Willow Grove Mall, for example, I know, I think it's at some point they were, they were either talking about, I don't know if it happened, but they were going to put like a movie theater in to sort of like make use of that empty space in a way that would still pull people in. Um, I'm mm-hmm. not sure sort of how the pandemic actually, you know, affected that. But yeah, I think that malls will have to rethink sort of what the purpose is because if you can buy so much stuff online you know there's not as much of a reason to go to them anymore yeah it's definitely true um 
I think like a little bit before the pandemic began, my because my husband is from like Dresher area, and I think he his school he went to Upper Dublin uh, to go to high school, and we graduated in two thousand seven <laughs> uh, to give people like kind of like an estimate of like how old I am. But <laughs> um, with the, it's so funny because the Sears at the Willow Grove Mall, I I'm surprised it's still open, but we went in and. I I feel like there were actual sections of the store that were just empty. Like it was actual retail space that was just completely void of any product. And it was almost spooky. I felt like we were um, in maybe like a zombie film because we were also the only ones in this series. But yeah, um, it's malls are also kind of like an interesting and strange topic. But uh, it's interesting yeah, that you mentioned Upper Dublin because I feel like so I was there this weekend and oh, cool. I feel like that is actually a huge, a really good example of like the changing suburbs because I remember that like when I would drive across the, in the Upper Dublin area, there were all of these like empty lots like and like they were just lots because they'd always been fields and then eventually they built like a Walmart, right? And then they started sort of building out strip malls and I've noticed that a lot of those empty lots like have suddenly become these like mixed use spaces. Like the Specifically, yes. like one empty lot has now become like a, it's like a shopping center that has a Sprouts and a Lululemon. And above it are these like fairly high end luxury apartments. And like across from it is like a luxury, you know, housing development for like 55 and up like people. Um, and so, so yeah, I think that's just like that area, for example, like I was shocked at how much they sort of like, they created almost like a town in a place where there was there had previously just been like empty fields and like big houses that like didn't really have stores around them. Um, yeah. And like, yeah. And like, it's really interesting to me because like that area, for example, is not particularly close to any train station and it's still kind of far from the city. So the idea that you, that like, you know, that you can sustain luxury apartments in this area that is still fairly like separate from things and where you still need a car, I think is very interesting about like, you know, who's moving to that area and like what they actually want. Um, and I guess they think that like people will actually pay those high prices to live there, assuming that there's all of those like amenities and stuff. Um, I, they must, they must be because my, yeah, my mother-in-law is always talking about like those new apartments that are, that are getting built. And uh, yeah, the, the kinds of, um, the store, the kinds of stores that you would see like in a shopping district in a city. So it's like these little areas that have mad city vibes, but they're like condensed and small and and in the burbs and everything. Like, you know, what role do you feel that media has played when it comes to covering food in the suburbs? Because in your piece, you kind of talk about how uh, there was this reference of how the suburbs were kind of described as a place where dining goes to die. And that is not necessarily the case anymore. Um, Do you feel that, you know, media plays a role in that? And if so, like, what kind of role are they playing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, I think that we went, I went into this idea for this series specifically saying that I, like, I didn't want us to do this, like, nostalgic, like, ironic thing, which I think is so often how media portrays the suburbs, which is like, oh, it's like a wasteland and it's just chains. And the purpose of the suburbs is that you like, that you grow up there and then you leave them and you go to the city. And I think that, you know, I think media has been really, like media has really shaped how we approach the suburbs, especially because I feel like so many people at like big food magazines and stuff are based in cities and specifically New York. 
And so the lens is very much that you're sort of talking to an audience that like, one, like really cares about what's happening in New York. And you sort of only really cover things that are at fairly close, you know, fairly close to the city, because it's sort of implied that your audience is like mostly living in those cities. And so I think that, and so I think that because of that, the suburbs have sort of generally been treated as just like these nostalgic reference points where, you know, it's always, you know, there are so many great pieces about sort of nostalgic, like why people love Olive Garden or, you know, how people understood their, you know, their identity through restaurants in the suburbs. And I think there is a lot of value in that, but I also, but I did want to sort of break out of that like media lens of just seeing the suburbs as like a nostalgic place or an ironic place or somewhere that you like leave and sort of think about the suburbs in like a, in like a more forward thinking sense and actually just sort of celebrate like what is good about them now, as opposed to being like, this was my childhood and this is why I liked it. That's yeah, that's such a great mission uh, for that, because not everybody in America lives in a city. And, you know, especially even like, I have to remind myself that also, not everybody lives on the East Coast kind of a thing. And it's, you know, the suburbs are this really unique place where it is bridging the gap between an urbanized area and also the countryside, more rural areas, but that's where the farm are. That's where the local produce is happening. So what I've found is like chefs in the suburbs have this access to the land and like of resources and of unique ingredients a lot. Like there's even um, there's a restaurant uh, near here in Merchantville that was on Check Please the first season. I think it's like um, Oh, I think it was like Parkside. I forget what the title, forgive me restaurant. I'm so sorry. But the, he forages throughout South Jersey and throughout the region oh, cool. uh, for everything that's on the menu. And so they're only open like a couple nights, maybe three nights a week. And then for the rest of the week, he's out like down the shore, like catching fish or, you know, getting scallops somewhere or like foraging for morels or <laughs> ramps, whatever's in season and bringing to the table this 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 food experience that is really celebrating the fact that we are really close to nature that we're both close to nature but also like close to a bustling urban uh atmosphere and yeah there's kind of um in terms of media i feel like i i have felt this um some attention being focused on the burbs, but it was kind of nice to see the series on Vice uh, come out and just say, like, this is the state of the suburb, the suburbs. And, um, you know, and it's kind of funny, too, because it's like with some of the restaurants that are starting to get attention, like a lot of them have been here for for some time. And in South Jersey, like um, there's some great Italian restaurants that have been around since like 2003. Um, there's some great uh Asian dining restaurants that have been here since the mid 2000s as well. So it's like I feel like the suburbs have known that the suburbs were cool and now everyone else is just starting to pick up on it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, yeah, I think that like it's yeah, there definitely are lots of long standing places that I think have been really good and are really sort of community institutions and it's, you know, and I think the mindset of media has sort of been like, you know, that's, you know, that's not a thing that's part of our area of coverage for example. Um, but yeah, speaking to the sort of the ingredients thing, like you mentioned, I feel like a really interesting thing I've noticed is that I think, 
you know, I think that sometimes we think of those types of things like, you know, foraging and, you know, being very intentional about ingredients as being these like these urban trends or like that the, the, the restaurants that are doing them are in cities and things like that. And I feel like an interesting thing has been sort of, it used to seem like to me, like there was more distance between like suburban dining culture and like, you know, city dining culture. Um, and that like, it's felt like the trends from the cities sort of took longer to get to the suburbs. But I think that now, especially like it feels like with like social media and sort of how, how looped in everyone is to sort of the same conversations and trends and like Instagram, like visuals on the internet. It seems like that sort of like delay in trends is like, is getting much smaller and that like suburban yeah. dining kind of is just doing the same, like very similar things to what's happening in cities without, you know, that like long time between like things making it out to the suburbs. Um, which I think is interesting to see things that are happening sort of coinciding um, at the same time. Yeah, yeah. There was a piece in this series that I really liked, which was about like, it was called The Beauty of the Outdated Suburban Restaurant by Elizabeth Sherman. Uh, do you feel like there was always beauty kind of in suburban dining? And, you know, the media is just kind of picking up on it now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I mean, I think there has always been beauty in it. And like, you know, there has always been a, a pull for the people who live in those areas to patronize those institutions. And like, there are reasons why, you know, a diner in Hatboro, Pennsylvania has like been around for decades, you know, clearly people love it and they see value in it. Um, even if it might seem like it's like, even if those places might seem like out of date or like, no, not trendy. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that is something that people who've been locals in areas have probably always recognized. Um, but I don't feel like that's like, you know, necessarily a mindset I see a ton in like, coverage about the suburbs is really like highlighting the like why those places are so wonderful especially to the people who live there and when when you were putting this um this series together what were what was like one of the most surprising stories or conversations that came up I mean I think it was just I think the thing that was just surprising to me was just sort of the excitement around suburban dining um, from all of the writers who sort of pitched us ideas and the writers that we worked with, like they, they clearly had places that they loved and wanted to, wanted to cover, um, that perhaps hadn't been covered in other places because of this idea that like, you know, those small mom and pop institutions weren't like necessarily like air quotes, like relevant to a national audience. Um, so it was just, it was nice to be able to get, you know, to give that spotlight to places that people had really strong feelings about, um. I love sort of the, the, there's a piece in the series um, about Toucan Taco, which is this Tex-Mex restaurant in Laurel, Maryland um, by the writer M.M. Kerrigan. And it was just so like, you know, I hadn't traveled in a, a basically a year and it just felt so evocative of this very like sort of like 70s, a little bit divey restaurant that like that people just love and for some reason has been able to stay open for decades, um, despite like so many things around it changing. And it was, it was like, it was great to be able to see that like passion from someone about this like local institution. Um, and I don't know that, you know, I don't know that food media has made a big place for the types of places like that, you know, historically. That's true. That's true. Do you feel um, that like awards are starting to focus outside of the city? Cause I know, um, 
here in South, well, here in New Jersey, um, even this past year, I think the the women behind Canal House, they were um, nominated for a James Beard this year. Um, I know Zeppoli, which is in Collingswood, the Italian restaurant, and he has a restaurant. He he does the um, Polizia um, Social Club in Philadelphia, but he has a second restaurant in South Jersey called Zeppoli, and that had been uh, recognized as well. Uh, do you feel as though there's kind of on the awards level, kind of a more focus outward? I'm not sure that like immediately, I'm not sure I've seen that yet, but I think that like, I, I, just, I do think that is in the future, especially because I, you know, when I was looking for restaurants in the suburbs, I was seeing a lot of like best restaurant roundups that were going into the suburbs and sort of encouraging the idea that people sort of look outside of cities. So I think that I hope to see that sort of increase. Hmm. And uh, what do you think are some advantages for restaurants to set up shop in the burbs? You know, I, I think like when I left Philadelphia, people were very much like, well, you're not going to be a Philadelphian anymore. And I was like, why does it have to be like about identity? And I feel the same way for for restaurants. It's like, it's kind of a big deal to be in Philadelphia. It's a big deal to be in New York City and Chicago and LA and so on and so forth. But, you know, for restaurateurs who are making the moves to the burbs or making their moves in the burbs rather, like what are some of the advantages Advantages you feel? Yeah, from what I've read, I mean, it seems like the top one is is that it's cheaper to open a restaurant in the suburbs. Um, you know, there I think there's there are probably more spaces available, and so and like the prices are lower. Um, so I think that is like the big driver. Um, but I think another big one from like from what I've read is that in the suburbs, it's true that sort of niches that are very saturated in cities have, are not quite the same it's not that's not the case in the suburbs so you you know you can try things that like you know maybe in the city you couldn't open another like vegan hoagie shop or something like that just like a random example but like in you know in like this in the suburbs maybe they don't have that yet and so you you can do those things that feel like maybe a lot of people are already doing them in the city um and it seems like another thing is also just that like people in suburbs are increasingly sort of looking for new places um, especially in areas that have a ton of chains. And so there, from what I've read, there is like this idea that if you open a new place in the suburbs, you can sort of have regulars who will sort of be like go to the restaurant very frequently and because they're like, they're hungry for new options. Um, so yeah, I think, and I think that like, as people become, you know, increasingly aware of like different food trends or different types of cuisine, it seems like in the suburbs, you know, there is more pull for options that they might not have had there before. That's awesome. Um, yeah, a, like, I agree. A really interesting thing I found this weekend also was like, there's this, it turns out there's a scrapyard in my hometown. And wait, there's a, a, a scrapyard? Yeah. So like a scrapyard oh. where people just kind of like bring their cars full of like metal that they've like, you know, junk and like things they're looking to get rid of and they can just like sell it to the scrapyard. But it turns out like that the scrapyard opened a coffee shop um, called, it's called Steel Penny in Hatboro, but so they opened a coffee shop and the coffee shop is like right next to the scrapyard. And so people like drop off their scrap and they get a coffee and it was, you know, their coffee was really good. And it was like, they sell La Colombe, um, which I sort of never expected to see in a scrapyard. In Afro. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But then I, but then it turns out on the weekend, they're also doing Detroit style pizza. So it's like where you like you, you pre-order it the day before. And then there's a limit. There's only a limited number of pizzas for the whole weekend. Um, but yeah, like things that's like, I feel like that's like Detroit style pizza is like a big trend in cities right now. 
And, you know, that's happening sort of at the same time in this like scrapyard in the suburbs, uh, which is really like none of those things I would have thought like would have happened. Um, but they do. Yeah, that's and, like, so cool. The pizza was really good. Um, so it's just like, I, I think that is like a very cool example of just the way that like people are trying new things in the suburbs and like, and it seems like they're selling out of the pizza. So it seems like it's doing pretty well. And so it's like, I think it's, it's like proof that people are sort of looking for things that are different and new. And like, you can sort of take a risk on things that, that didn't exist there before. That's true. And I, I feel like there's a lot more forgiveness in being extremely ambitious and risky. Like that is such a, you, like that is extremely unexpected to have a scrapyard that's like a coffee shop every day. And then on the weekends is suddenly this like Detroit style pizza shop. Like that's, it's incredibly ambitious. And I feel like you have to be very methodical and like smart about your moves in the city, because if you make a bad investment, that could really like mess up with your bottom line. But in the burbs, there's a lot more of this forgiveness and like almost the fluidity. And also like, it seems like this place has no bounds now. Like maybe on Wednesdays, they'll become a fried chicken place or, you know, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, another, another piece that in the, in like the series that we did that I think really like speaks to this idea well also is this piece by the St. Louis writer, Adam Rothbard, which is about, um, a, a pizza restaurant that does like Neapolitan pizza in the suburbs of St. Louis. And like, you know, it, it, to the, to the chef, it was sort of like a risky concept, like, but it's, but it was sort of like a leap of faith that was, and, you know, to take, to do a different approach to Italian food in that area, I think he, it was not clear that like, you know, that there was a huge market for it, but, but they tried it and it, and the risk sort of paid off and it's for, it's been like very popular so far. Um, and I know they've gotten a lot of the claim for their pizzas. Um, so I think it is like, you know, I think we are seeing these examples of people just trying something out and it turns out that there is an audience for it. Um, or there's an audience that just needs to be like nudged slightly into that, you know, into that like type of food or that trend. Um, but it works and people like want it. Oh, so now with things kind of stabilizing with the pandemic, you know, it was sad to see, I think like the stats were like one in six eating establishments closed during the pandemic. But Mm -hmm. in the first couple of months of this year alone, there had been this substantial increase in applications for food businesses uh, that the Census Bureau had like documented. So there is kind of, and I'm already seeing it now as like, there were a couple of restaurants in town that have closed, but now it's, you know, new businesses are already opening up and, you know, and suddenly like the culinary landscape is having this like extremely jarring change. Like there, the one spot that I'm thinking of in particular is on this like little main street in Oakland, New Jersey. And there's a brewery at one end of the street. There's like a coffee shop. And it's just like, it's literally just one block of really cool food businesses. But there was a, um, there was a vegan restaurant that had closed, uh, during the pandemic, but recently a, pudding dessert shop it's called the pudding palace like such a niche concept just all pudding it's cheesecake pudding um you know and and the puddings are all like like the cold stone creamery of of pudding where it's like you get cake and mix-ins and cereals and everything like Mm -hmm. i got uh fruity pebbles last (laughs) night which was a great great combination but it's it's amazing it's awesome because it's a 
Black woman owned establishment that has been able to, you know, move into a space that was already outfitted with a commercial Mm -hmm. kitchen, um, which like my mom had opened a bakery a few years ago and she had to build her commercial kitchen, which I remember that being like really, really an investment and Mm -hmm. difficult to do. So now it's like, yeah, I'm sad to see some restaurants go, but the people behind those concepts are still here. And there's all of these open kitchens and there's, there's lots of, um, the ghost kitchen concept is also uh, the, the suburbs, uh, like my suburb just got its first ghost kitchen. Oh wow. Um, that's going to be setting up. Yeah. So that was a big thing in like in the cities, uh, that kind of like sparked up and I'm excited to see it carry, see that spirit carry out to the burbs. So I'm excited to see, um, all of the, you know, the different innovation that comes out of this. But with things like kind of stabilizing, are you going to be traveling again? And do you see yourself going to more suburbs? I mean, so at the moment, I mean, I just did my first travel for like, you know, for the first time since the pandemic started. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm hoping to a little bit more. I love to, I think it's still kind of hard to, you know, it's still kind of hard to travel and I don't want to do it a ton. Um, But I am hoping to go out to LA, especially because I've like, you know, we had a piece about Alhambra and like the San Gabriel Valley in LA. And I would love to sort of do like an eating tour of the like suburban strip malls in LA. Um, just yes. it's, but it is sort of overwhelming to think about eating in LA because every time I think about making a list, I'm like, well, okay, so I need to do six meals a day <laughs> to fit all of these <laughs> in. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would love to travel more. I have just, it's been really interesting to see like over the pandemic to see all of the new places that are opening. Um, and suddenly yeah. now I do want to go to so many places um, in different cities. So I hope that's in the, that, that'll be in the future for me. But yeah, I think another interesting thing has just been sort of the way the pandemic has um, sort of freed us from certain ideas of how we had to eat. You know, like I think the the move to like so much outdoor dining, especially in cities, has been really great. Um, and I sort of hope to see more, you know, that sort of continue on. But I also think, I know, I think that like a lot of people who, you know, wanted to start food businesses or, you know, ended up starting food businesses, just like real, like started to really realize that they could do non-traditional formats, you know, like all of the bakers who sell on Instagram or just people really yes. leaning into like to-go plates and, you know, clever things that you can do as takeout or like meal delivery boxes. Um, and oh I yeah, think, the kits. I love right? the kits. I feel like that's yeah. been really like, I think that's been really fun from a diner's perspective to be able to like have all of these different ways that you can experience like restaurant food. Um, but I also think that's also just opened up a lot of potential for people who make food businesses to like, to do things where like, you know, before it felt like, okay, open the restaurant. And I think now it's like, you know, it feels a little bit um, looser or like you can do more things. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited to watch the suburbs grow. I'm also excited to see cities become revitalized again after all of this madness. Uh, But thank you so much for such an awesome series. And thanks for, you know, sharing your expertise with us today. You can find more of Bettina's work on Vice Munchies. You can also follow her on Twitter and TikTok at Bettina Mac and on Instagram at Bettina. She also has an inspiring food styling Instagram called Crispy Egg 420, which I highly recommend. 
You can also follow Amuse Bouche on social media at Amuse Bouche Pod, and be sure to subscribe to the Amuse Bouche newsletter on Substack. Every week, you'll find even more food stories, recipes, and now gardening updates. Now that it's summertime, it's a free newsletter at the moment, but I do accept tips. So consider helping a sister out by throwing her a few bucks a month. You can also support me by engaging with the show and following me personally at Kalani Says on Instagram and Twitter. Amuse Bouche is hosted by yours truly, Kehlani Palmasano. The music at the beginning and the end of this podcast is by the Great North Sound Society, and the song is called South Street Strut, a little nod to my Philly folks out there. At the moment, I'm working as a one-woman band, producing, editing, and bringing these amazing food stories to your ears. So if you like what you're listening to, be sure to subscribe. We've also got some amazing guests coming in the next few weeks, and you're not going to want to miss it.